and a pleasant good evening, Mets fans. Welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. Try number two at starting this thing up because I burped mid-startup here on episode 90. Episode 90. We've gotten through nine-tenths of a century here on PGE. Incredible, really. And you know what else is incredible? Beyond me and Jack Hendon doing 90 of these things for you guys is that the Mets might have given us one of the only undefeated weeks in Pleasant Good Evening podcast history. The Mets went 5-0 and this week. They've won six in a row. Vibes are great around this ball club right now for a bevy of reasons, a myriad of reasons, an adjective of reasons. Jack, how are you doing? I'm, I'm a myriad of good things. I'm, I'm doing just – I'm so good. I'm so good right now. This team really has just been like – it was like they took it personally. Uh, that they traded for other hitters. Like the offense is just doing something completely, completely different now. Um, I mean, there's so much more going on than just that. And we'll, we'll get on, we'll get to the good stuff shortly. But I mean, this week was just, I, I, I gotta say every time we get into one of these crucial series and we do a preview the episode before, I'm always the one who's like, this is going to be the one where like, they get exposed a little bit. Like I was so sure that they were going to get swept by the Yankees in this thing. I really didn't think that they had played a team. I mean, really speaking, like they probably haven't played a team as good as the Yankees to this point. The Yankees are the best team in baseball, but like they won both of the games. They did. They like, they were actually like hard fought, good victories. You can't even be like the Yankees weren't that good. They weren't on their a game. They had their worst pitchers. Like, no, like, the Yankees came to play and they hit really well. And the Mets had a few Mets moments, but they still came away with those wins. And like, I'm just, I'm starting to believe that there's really no point now where this team is going to be overmatched. Um, and that's an awesome feeling to be having at the end of July. We're now two weeks into the second half. Like I, I would have thought something would have come out of the balloon by now, but as the case has been like all year, I've been, I've, I've, been writing them off way too early they 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 just they had a great week i'm really you know as if it matters at all i'm really proud of them it it had it was an outstanding week and it was a fun week and a week that i actually got to watch a little bit of them play not this weekend against the marlins they did sweep the marlins to finish out the week which was fantastic especially because it ended really with a couple of nice simple cruising wins which you love to see frankly uh, but against the Yankees to start the week wins two and three of this stretch in which they haven't lost any of their last six games. Um, yeah, it was pretty fun. The Yankees, I got to watch the back end of that second game of the Yankee series. Um, the last like five or six innings of that one, the Scherzer start. Yeah. I, yeah, that was, that was just so much fun. It's so fun getting to see Max Scherzer be a New York Met and do cool things as a New York Met, especially when they come against, like, the New York Yankees. Yeah, Um, when it's against Aaron Judge. Yeah, he made Judge look like a little bitch. Yeah. Three strikeouts. Yeah, he struck him out three times. Judge had a good series otherwise. Judge Judge homered in the first thing of game one. That's the other thing is you talk about how the Mets didn't look overmatched at all against the Yankees. Obviously, they didn't. They They won both games, but... It could have gone so much worse. It could have gone poorly from the jump because Judge and Rizzo hit back-to-back home runs off Taiwan Walker in the opening game of that series in the first inning. 
They yeah. were down two nothing before they even batted, yeah. and they came back against Jordan Montgomery, who's had a pretty good season to and that it's point. Lefty. And he's a lefty. And the Mets have, for the most part, struggled against left-handed pitching. And they scored four off of him in the first inning and never really looked back. Like, this game, both games against the Yankees, slapped. They were both excellent, excellent baseball games, excellent wins. Starling Marte, very good baseball player. He is red hot this month. Very hot baseball player. Very hot baseball player. Marte hot. Lindor hot as well. Uh, like he always seems to play some of his best baseball against the Yankees. He was out in full force this week, these five games. He was playing great baseball this week, especially down in Miami, hit a home run, had some RBI knocks. He's like fifth in the National League in RBIs right now, uh, which is kind of sneaky. You love it. It's great. They're hitting 311 with runners in scoring position over this six-game win streak. That's 23 hits and 74 at-bats. It's the second six-game win streak of the season. Yeah, That's the season high. This was a good week for the on-field results for the New York Mets. Yeah. I mean, to your point about Lindor and the Yankees, just very quickly, I I feel almost as though that Lindor game that ended the Subway Series last year, uh, where he hit the three home runs, has sort of – set off this cinematic universe in the subway series where every game is just a continuation of drama from the prior game. Um, And by drama, I don't necessarily mean like player to player drama, like the whistling thing that happened very briefly in that last game, but like just the back and forth, the, the way that these two teams play against each other, the way that they respond to another team doing something um, I mean, even in cases, I think, where the Mets would have lost those games, um, either Tuesday or Wednesday, those were both very close matchups um, where at any point, like either team could have could have taken a lead, could have gone away with something. I think there's there's something to be said about the uh, the theater that surrounds these baseball teams when they play each other now it's so much better when these two teams are on the same page like this and it very seldom happens like I would even go so far as to say that like this is the first time since 2006 that we've seen it like this because 2015 obviously both teams made the playoffs but the Yankees kind of stumbled in in a wild card state and didn't make it out of the first round and generally didn't have a complete roster um And neither did the Mets really, I think, for that matter. Like, the Mets had been riding very, very good games and good wins, but they weren't projected to be, like, a better team than the Dodgers or the Cubs in that postseason, or even the Cardinals, for that matter. Like, right now, though, these two teams are the top of their class in their leagues, I would say. Um, It's maybe potentially not, because I know the Dodgers have been fairly good, but, like, it's about as close as it can get to that, if it isn't already that. And the way that I think you see fans interacting with each other, the way that you see these games turning out, it's, it's really special. It's not, it's, it's something kind of different from just the standard. Oh, the Mets are good for the first time in a while. Like this is like the Mets are good. And New York is a baseball town for, for the first time to this extent in a really long time. Yeah. And like New York fans are enjoying both their teams I mean, Eduardo Escobar, they filled that stadium both nights. Like, Eduardo Escobar said he's never played in the World Series before, but he felt like he had a home run in the World Series. Yeah. And he hit that first inning home run the first game. He was hyped. He was super hyped about that. And, like, 
credit to him for like coming through in that series too because we've been like we've been in so many cases like very down on Escobar before but he does pick I think like the right moments like that was a pretty good moment in the first inning when he needed to answer back and he basically gave him the answer um yeah that was that was a lot of fun I that Friday went against the Marlins too though um before we move on to other things I think that that also deserves its moment um between a similar narrative of a pitcher not really having it, but the offense sort of supporting him, right? Because we saw this with Walker on Tuesday and we saw it with Bassett on Friday, a guy not having his best stuff, but the the Mets hitters stepping in and support. Um, that was very exciting and, and fun to see. Not only the- that, yeah. yeah. It, was, it wasn't just the fact that Bassett gave up a three-run double in the first inning. They were down 3 nothing in the second inning in that game. It was yeah. They were facing probably the best pitcher in the National League right now. Yeah, they scored four off Sandy Alcantara and pushed him out of the game after five innings. He yeah. was like, I, I don't know if it was his shortest start of the season, but it's it's something that he doesn't do often. He's a guy that goes I deep into games. I think it was his shortest. I need to look this up now because there were a bunch of tweets about it, um, about basically Sandy Alcantara's run of of untouchability being broken by the Mets that night because that was. That was really, I mean, yeah, I keep saying special, but also it, it was special. It was, yeah, no one had done this before uh, to Sandy Alcantara this year. This is Anthony Decoma, who I'm reading off of. Um, it's his shortest start since May 6th. They forced Alcantara out of a game after five innings. It's just the third time in 21 starts that he's made this year that he hasn't recorded an out in the sixth inning. Um, no. I mean, again, the Mets are a good team good teams are capable of doing this against a guy like Alcantara, but like, am I used to it? I'm really not used to it. No. The Nimmo home run was awesome too. Um, the Nimmo yeah, home run came at like just the perfect time. Uh, he, Marte and Lindor have very much answered the bell. I think that we were ringing the last few weeks about the fact that the offense was basically relying on them and them alone. Plus Alonzo to get runs in. Uh, and those guys, stepped up and started hitting again, started leading at the top of the lineup. But of course, like everybody else has also been pitching in um, 70 hits in one week since, since Sunday. And they've only played in five games and that's tied for fourth in the national league. Um, it's, it's clicking right now. Uh, yeah. Dan Vogelback just keeps getting on base. Yeah. That too. Vogelback he got, is a great addition. He reached base in 10 of his first te- first 18 plate appearances as a Met. Um even today in the Sunday game, Tyler Naquin had an RBI triple. Like, we haven't even talked about Tyler Naquin yet. Tyler Naquin. Yeah. We're 10 minutes into this podcast, and we still haven't talked about the fact that the Mets made a trade so far. Yeah. You know, another trade. They Obviously, the Vogelback trade, but they also brought in another bat in Tyler Naquin, who is, like, by definition, a league average hitter. Yeah, which in terms of how the Reds have gone this year, it's pretty darn good because they're not a very good offensive team. Uh, off got off to a good start this year. Um, had a better year last year. Hit for some power last year, but he's a one hundred one WRC plus guy. He was like zero point zero wins above replacement WAR guy. Like, yeah. literally, literally league average guy. Uh but he, in some respects, is an improvement over what the Mets had already. I think we should just chat 
Tyler and yeah. talk about the trade. I think that's a yeah. good time to jump into that aspect of the week because the Mets added Tyler Naquin. They added two players in that deal. They also got a left-hander named Philip Deal uh, from the Reds in that deal, uh, as everybody has been joking about his last name and Art. involved in the trade. Part um, of the deal, you know. Yeah. All right, here's the deal. Uh, it was Tyler Naquin, Philip Deal for two teenagers, a right-handed starting pitcher, Jose Acuna, and a utility-type guy, more probably of an outfielder, Hector Rodriguez. Acuna is 19, Rodriguez is 18. And you think, oh, two complex guys, right? They're teenagers. No, these guys were in stateside ball. They were in full-season ball with St. Lucie. Acuna, in particular, is pretty well-regarded as a young starting pitching prospect who jumped up boards a little bit this year. Rodriguez is also pretty fairly well-regarded for a guy who's just 18. So... For a you know probably minor league pitcher in Philip Deal who's got just terrible major league numbers in his uh, in his career as a 28 year old minor league left hander uh, and Tyler Naquin who's just like a league average rental they yeah. kind of gave up a couple of decent pieces they're lottery tickets these are young kids but um, not without value so yeah. the question begins to kind of creep into your mind did the Mets lose this trade? I mean, potentially. I think that they're in a position right now where, like, if you win the World Series uh, and Tyler Naquin is on that roster in the playoffs, in the World Series, and he's contributing in some way, I don't really think it's it's a loss because you worked yourself to a point where you are in a better position to win a World Series. That's a very big if. Because, like you said, Tyler Naquin is pretty much nothing more than a replacement for Jankowski. Um, Acuna and Rodriguez, though, I mean, those guys are a lot better than people seem to realize. Uh, The Reds, I think the Reds definitely won this trade. Uh, I think they robbed a bank uh, because, really, they they didn't have any place else to go with Naquin. I'm pretty sure he's a free agent after this year. Um, And Philip Deal is basically Thomas Sapucky in Reds colors. Uh, like for them, this is a huge coup for the Mets. If they win a world series, it's worth it. Is it kind of still like bad process? Probably. Um, I also think it's like much worse process. If this is like the best or second best trade that they make before the deadline, like they just, they simply need to continue making moves in order to ease the potential sting of making a pretty risky business transaction and standing behind it as like one of your better ones. Like they, they just, they can't afford to stop um, is the most important thing. I think winning the Reds obviously got the better end of this deal, but like you can still, if you're the Mets avoid losing the trade, if you treat this trade as one component in the same way Vogelbach is one component, Um, there are still things you can do. And the Braves are like only three games out, right? Like you need to make trades. There's no, oh, the team's really good. I know we just said, we just waxed poetic about how great they are. And they obviously are. But every team that's remotely good right now in this market is going to be buying. And if someone pries like Wilson Contreras off your hands or Trey Mancini or David Robertson and you lose out on that, like it all looks a little bit worse on your end. So probably like 
give us reason to forget that this trade actually happened in the first place. Yeah, I'll go back to the process comment of it all, and then I'll talk about you know the remaining yeah. trade deadline deals that need to be made. Because I'm with you on that one. This can't be the end of the deadline for the Mets, and I don't think it will be. Uh, the process, I agree. I don't think it's great process. Uh, I think this is very reminiscent of a couple of trades that the previous regime may have made. Uh, specifically, I don't think Tyler Naquin is as bad a baseball player as Keon Broxton. He certainly no. isn't. Keon Broxton was absolutely terrible here, and Naquin in two days has contributed more to the Major League roster than Broxton ever did back in 2019. But the Mets traded Felix Valerio and Adam Hill for Keon Broxton. And who are those guys? You might ask if you're not a big prospect guru, but Valerio is like the Brewers number three or four prospect. He's a well-considered prospect in a pretty good Brewers system. And Adam Hill was flipped for their starting catcher. They sent him to Seattle for Omar Narvaez and they got those two guys for Keon Broxton. Like that is as bad a process as you can get, but that's the kind of stuff that happens when you are letting teams work your complex or work your lower minor system. And, and if you tell a team, hey, we want Naquin, we'll let you pick a teenager. And they say, all right, I'll take Jose Acuna. That's got a knockdown effect on your entire yeah. farm system yeah. for years to come. If you think about why the Mets can't be front runners for Juan Soto, be not a clear front runner anyways. If they include Francisco Alvarez and Brett Beatty, it moves the needle very firmly. I don't think the Mets are going to be there when it's all said and done because the Nationals don't want to trade in division, mm, whatever, sure. you know. But a big reason as to why they can't push that needle so far to the left that the Nationals have to say yes to the Mets is because they traded guys like Valerio. They traded guys like the in the J.D. Davis trade and the Jake Marisnik trade, not that Blake Taylor would have any pull in that regard, but there is an effect that it has on your farm system two, three, four years down the road when yeah. you're letting teams pick these guys that you can't self-scout and say, no, Jose Acuna is a good prospect. He's off the table. You, like, unless you want to give me something of more value. It's right. that kind of process. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also it's not even obviously like the the big culprit here is the Brody Van Wagenen administration because they did this every other week it seemed. But like, you know, when the Mets traded Andy Rodriguez to the Pirates in the three team deal for Joey Lucchese, like that was also a situation that kind of parallels in that like if you wanted to trade a catcher right now, a a, a, a high ceiling a catcher potentially to another team and didn't want to part with Alvarez you could have parted with Rodriguez, right? It's not necessarily about how good these guys will be for your team at the major league level. It's about what you can turn them into in the negotiation room. And like now you can't really do that. And you're also at a point too, where because you dealt two fairly good minor league players for just Tyler Naquin, there's going to be no, there's no reason for a team you're negotiating with to not ask you for the moon and the stars for Wilson Contreras, for Juan Soto, if it hypothetically ever came to that, for Shohei Otani. Like, you sort of put yourself in this hole by proxy where other teams already realize that you're super willing to part with young players if it makes your team better in the immediate future. And again, like I said, if you win the World Series, the flags fly forever. Like, the Cubs fans, they don't care at all that they traded Labor Torres. And we've talked about that before. 
for getting a role as Chapman. They made that deal. They took a risk, but they made other deals around it. They made sure that wasn't the only one, and they won a World Series because of it. Yeah. Um, like the Mets can the Mets can take that route if they want. I I wouldn't trade for Roldis Chapman, um, but like you can still take that uh, that path where you're giving up pretty talented players who are in the minor leagues right now for pretty talented major league players. But like it's the talented major league players thing that you got to follow through on right now. Yeah, uh, the bullpen is still a thing of need. Uh, I don't think anybody's out here thinking that. Philip deal is the answer. And I don't even think that unless something goes horribly awry, Philip deal won't even pitch for the Mets at the major league level this season, maybe ever he's out of options. He's not on the 40 man roster in a weird way. This was part, I think a salary dump for the Reds because deal is a guy who has pitched in parts of three seasons at the major league level meaning that he is out of options. He is used of all his options. He's been outrighted off the major league roster, off the 40-man roster. So for a non-40-man roster minor league player, he's probably making a little bit more money than the standard non-40-man rostered AAA guy. So the Reds were probably just, you know, trying to throw his 200-whatever-K in which is not a lot of money the reds are notoriously cheap but from that perspective it also makes it not the greatest look for the mets uh if they took on salary in this deal and still traded away two fairly good prospects for a guy who's hopefully never going to pitch for them um and a guy that probably won't be on this team after this season that's the trade though and it's up to Naquin to move the needle back in the Mets' favor and contribute at the Major League roster and hopefully provide more than the neutral value he was providing for a pretty bad Reds team. So we'll yeah. see what happens there. Um, he did contribute today. He had an RBI extra base hit. So we'll see how much he plays. Uh, the Mets, I think, it certainly seems like they're using Naquin as a platoon partner for Mark Canna through the first two days post-trade. Canna has sat against two right-handed pitchers the last yeah. two days in favor of Naquin, which I find interesting. I think right. Naquin's, Naquin's probably a little bit of a better defender in the outfield. He's not particularly well-rated um, by certain stat cast metrics, but frankly, neither is Mark Canna as a left fielder. So that remains to be seen. What he does have over Canna is a little more sprint speed. He's faster than Canna, uh, but Canna, despite not having shown a lot of power this year is one of the best at bats in baseball. He sees more yeah. pitches than anybody. He's a three fifty on base guy. Uh, and that's not something that you can really just take out of the lineup eight out of 10 games. We'll see what the Mets wind up doing with him. But I think the broader conversation here is the trade deadline two days from now, tomorrow, if you're listening to this on Monday, when the episode's going to drop uh, it's August 2nd is the trade deadline. So the Mets still have work to do. They've got chips on the table right now. Obviously they're probably talking to five or 10 different teams, about 15 or 20 different players at any given moment over the course of this last week um, in preparation of the trade deadline. I think that you and I agree that there's still at least one bat to get and probably two relievers. Yeah. Yeah. 
Definitely. I think that the most efficient way to figure out the bat problem is just to win the Wilson Contreras sweepstakes. Um, the Mets are probably the best equipped of like the, the major contending teams to, to make this run. Um, I know the Astros appear to be a pretty good fit, but uh, I know they also really put a priority on the defense aspect of this. And Contreras isn't particularly like the best defender. He's certainly no Maldonado. Um, I think the Mets should totally pull out the stops to make that happen and they should make it happen so much so that David Robertson is also coming over in that trade. I think that that's also an imperative. Um, there are a few relievers who have the stack cast page that he has who are just hanging out on the market right now. The Mets should absolutely pull the trigger on that. And that would be one trade. Um, you would knock out two birds with one trade. You wouldn't be negotiating and balancing deals with another team for another reliever. I would make that one trade to figure out your bat problem and your catcher problem in one and one of your relief problems. And then I would trade for a left-handed reliever. Um, I would potentially trade for Andrew Chafin, um, provided he'll be able to legally enter Canada when it's time to play them, if we do end up playing them, uh, or Aaron Loop um, or Joe Mantiply. Um, it's really strange that the Rockies will not make Daniel Bard available. I really, really thought Daniel Bard would have been a great like alternative if you couldn't have gotten D-Rob. Um, but they, I think they really do need relievers because Drew Smith is hurt now. Like he's just not there. You've gone from, you're now, I mean, really right now, your third best reliever is Seth Lugo, who was good in a game against the Yankees and he seemed to be decent on Saturday against the Marlins, but like, should he be your third best reliever in the playoffs? Absolutely not. No, no I'm way. with you. I I want. I think, I think I want David Robertson more than I want Wilson Contreras. Like I think that's where I'm at, and I think that's a totally justified opinion to have because the way the offense has been, like, yeah, whatever. Like I want a bat. Obviously, I think the more pressing issue for me, frankly, is getting you know someone who could hit left-handed pitching here. Someone who could be a right-handed platoon partner for Daniel Vogelback, and someone who hopefully could be fine against right-handed pitching and spell Eduardo Escobar if necessary. The Giants, they're selling. They're they're doing a retool. The reports are that they're going to trade uh, any veteran who gets a nut. Like if if they get the right deal for a veteran, they're going to trade a veteran, whether that's Carlos Rodon, who could be a really big name to hit the market if they really decide to trade him. Um, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Yankees, probably a great fit there after missing out on Luis Castillo. Um, yeah, know that, I know that hurt him. Yeah. I know that hurt. I think the Giants could be an interesting trade partner, um, regardless of what the Mets do with the Cubs slash Red Sox, because the Red Sox also – are an interesting backup for the Mets if they want to address the catcher position. Christian Vasquez is on a expiring contract as well. Isn't as good a hitter as Contreras, but definitely a better defender than Contreras and still a better bat than Tomas Nito. He's basically Tomas Nito. If Tomas Nito ever figured out how to be what the Mets actually need him to be offensively. Sure. Yeah. The Giants, I have said it before. I said it last week the perfect right-handed platoon option for Daniel Vogelback and a guy who can play a little third base poorly but still play it to spell Eduardo Escobar is a former Met named Wilmer Flores. I want him so badly. Please, 
please make this happen. Billy Epler. Also a potential get less so now with Tyler Naquin in tow on this team. If Jock Peterson's available, that could be like a thumper that you can add to the lineup, but I don't know if there's a spot for him with Naquin on the roster. Um, just kind of would have been cool if Jock was here, but I'm with you. Yeah. I think that the best trade the Mets could make right now is that two for one with the Cubs that has been so often talked about over the last couple of weeks, David Robertson and Wilson Contreras. And apparently the asking price is still through the roof across baseball. That's why there haven't been too many trades for rentals. Andrew Benintendi is really the only notable trade for a rental outside of Naquin. We'll see what winds up coming to fruition. I think it's going to be a wild couple days. Chips on the table. It's 9.43 p.m. on Sunday, July 31st. By the time we put this episode out in roughly 12 hours, there could be trades that we've missed. Well, that's the other thing, actually, because you mentioned other trades. David Peralta getting sent to the Rays is kind of another sort of like blinking light if you're the Mets and you just made that deal for Tyler Naquin. I completely forgot to mention this, but like the Rays got Peralta for virtually nothing. And that was a, a deal where I think you probably get more defensively than you would with Naquin. The speed would probably be the same speed. You might have a little bit of a more competent bat at that point. I don't think that Peralta is the guy that he was like two or, or three years ago. Um, like he clearly doesn't really have the hit tool anymore. I understand them prioritizing the platoon option who can hit to spell Canna. Cause I also think Canna's is probably missing some time because, um, you know, he's probably taking some time because he had that back problem last year and needs some of that rest in between. So that would also make some sense, but I think really like, yeah, as far as other options, I think the giants are a good fit. I think Wilmer makes a lot of sense. I think Darren Ruff could be good too, although he's kind of like Vogelback and he doesn't work anywhere. If Longoria weren't hurt, I'd like him, but Vogelback. Yeah. Ruff could be an interesting platoon partner for Vogelback. I hadn't thought of that one. I think that he's pretty much a right-handed Vogelback. He walks yeah. me homers. Yeah. Yeah. So you that... could get like a little marketing thing with the two of them, just given their statures and whatnot. But like, yeah, he's basically Vogelback, just right-handed. That could be interesting, actually, as a, if he's cheap. I mean, I, I think I'd be down for it. Um, but really, as a just a DH partner for Vogelback, and you get a little bit of that Giants magic that, that they employed so well last year, platooning everyone and their mother. Yeah. Uh, I still do want Wilmer. I do. I really do. And then I agree with you. I want a bat, whether that's the right-handed platoon option or Wilson Contreras – J.D. Martinez could be another interesting guy to spell Vogel back and play a little bit in the outfield, what have you. Uh, I don't really see a great fit there because he's a guy. He's the kind of guy you're going to want to play every day. Yeah. And if he's a short side platoon guy for Vogel back, then he's you know going to have to play the outfield uh, if he's not DHing. If you want him in the lineup every day, so that one's a bit weird. Apparently the Red Sox are still asking for the moon on him, uh, which I think we will see resolve itself. By yeah. All star break. He's gone. Like the Red Everyone's Sox asking for the moon too. Like this is how negotiations are going to go right now. Like when it's, when the clock is running out and like, they really need to either make a deal or take a bath, they're going to make a deal. Like teams are just going to, it's all going to happen. 
on Tuesday at like 4.45. Like, it's going to be very last minute. Um, yeah, you will be last minute. I think. Yeah, that's how you do negotiations. You start high and you work, you whittle yourself down because when you start high, you don't actually anticipate to get that asking price because yeah. that's how negotiations work. So, you play I mean, chicken too. Yeah. But yeah. Say it again. You play chicken too. I mean, that's what they do with each other. Yeah, you play chicken. Exactly. Exactly. You see who's willing to blink on the asking prices first. Yeah. And if you get that ask, then you run with it. You take it. And I'm sure that's exactly what happened with the Reds. Not only are the Mets probably going to have reinforcements by Tuesday evening because of the trade deadline, but Tuesday evening and Wednesday, they're getting reinforcements back because of injury guys returning. Trevor May is going to return to the team on Wednesday after – he pitched back-to-back days in rehab in Syracuse. So that'll be a nice boost to the bullpen, basically taking the Drew Smith role, and you hope he's a little more effective, but you still got to get relievers. James McCann um, will rejoin the Mets ahead of their homestand versus the Braves next weekend after his rehab assignment that's continuing in Binghamton. He homered today, actually, in his first at-bat for the Rumble Ponies. And then Tuesday, the Mets are going to have a starting pitcher on the mound by the name of Jacob deGrom for the first time this season, which is very, very cool. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. I think that will be really, really neat um, because you know what we're not doing is panicking over his last rehab start. We're not panicking over that. Um, I don't think that there's any reason to panic except unless if you wanted to panic, which it feels like some fans really wanted to panic over that last rehab start. I mean, are you used to Jacob deGrom giving up homers to guys named Brewer Hicklin and and Drew Waters? Like, no, I do kind of understand it. I'm not like, I'm not worried, but like, also we know why it happened too. According to him. Yeah. Yeah. He, his leg was cramping, which actually makes a lot of sense because if you watched his follow through, you were probably panicking about that because like he wasn't finishing the way he usually finishes, but that was, you know, him compromising his body because it was cramping. Um, like I'll save the worrying for when he comes out after like 60 pitches in four innings, even though that's like what the plan is anyway, like I'll just be panicking in between each of his starts because you don't really know yet. Like, how long it's going to last, like how long he's really going to be back. But I'm still going to watch Tuesday very strongly. Like yeah. this, is, this is a long time coming. And I, I don't see any reason for Matt fans to do anything other than enjoy it a lot. Yeah, it was weird. The rehab started, he gave up the two homers. He gave up four runs and four innings. But he also was not necessarily sitting up near 100. He was more 95s to 97s. Yeah. Um, which that was the part that I was concerned about. Cause like, whatever, like he'll, you know, do it'll piece up a homer. If you miss like middle instead of away, whatever, um, that stuff just happens in baseball occasionally. Like jazz Chisholm turned 101 around for a homer off the Grom last season. Like by Mel Tapia. Yeah. Like guys, yeah. homer off guys. It's part of the sport. So I was trying not to think about the results. I was trying to treat it like a spring training start where, you don't focus on the results so much as you think about going back to our trade conversation earlier. The process 
is important sometimes. And the process here was that the velocity was down. He looked uncomfortable on the mound. He was not finishing correctly. Um, he was missing his location. You know, he was walking. That's the thing is like, whatever, homers happen, but like Jacob DeGrom walking three guys in a four-inning start just doesn't happen. So that was the part that had me concerned. So it was good to hear him talk about how he didn't feel fine physically, but it is not something to be worried about. It's a cramp. It's not anything arm-related. It's legs. It's his cramping in his legs um, that you hope doesn't follow him to the big leagues for his start in Washington on Tuesday. Uh, still intends to opt out after this season. Still intends to test the free agent market after this year. Um, the wonder is that if he pitches poorly down the stretch, which obviously we don't want him to, maybe he decides to stay. But uh, the belief is that Jacob DeGrom will be a free agent after this season. So basically, he's a trade acquisition, a rental acquisition. We're getting him back on deadline day. Uh, the narrative works perfectly in that regard. I know we always joke about how Mets teams in the past always treated big injury guys coming back as big trade deadline acquisitions that you don't have to give up pieces for, which is, you know, BS. But in this event, they're literally getting him back on deadline day, and he's going to be a free agent after this year. So what are we, what are we expecting out of Jacob DeGrom? I have no idea what to expect out of him. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm expecting the velo to be the same. Um, I'm not expecting him to, to throw 95, 97, like he did that last rehab start. Um, I was reading uh, Tony DeComo's article about like how DeGrom has been preparing himself physically and, uh, you know, trying to do his part to do his due diligence to make sure that like he doesn't hurt himself again while pitching um, he's apparently been studying video of his mechanics from 2018 and 19 when he was pretty much had a clean bill of health like the entire year and compared them to how he looked in the spring. Um, he found that he was loading up way too fast in his delivery, which was sort of, um, you know, that was sort of causing him to throw his shoulder back more intensely um, and then falling off towards first base after the finish and his follow through. Um, you know, that's a pretty standard, like if you're not finishing balanced after you throw the ball. Uh, your body is not going to recharge for the next pitch the way that it should. Like you need to have a repetition. And that's something that we've credited DeGrom with. And everybody who watches him really notices about him when he's at his peak is that his, his delivery is so repeatable and the mechanics are so clean um, that when it's not, like you said, during his rehab, like you could tell when he's uncomfortable, you can tell, but also if he's getting ahead of himself, he could hurt himself. And he clearly could tell looking at the film that there were moments where he was doing that. And um, so I think that like, that's going to be, that's probably a very good sign that he's in a good position to like, at least monitor his, his own arm and how he feels. Um, he's going to be on a pitch limit on Tuesday, no matter what it's going to be against the nationals. So even if like, he doesn't actually like pitch well by our standards, it will probably still be enough for a win. Um I'm interested to see what happens Sunday because that would be his next start, assuming all goes well on Wednesday. That would be a day game against the Braves on Sunday. Like, I might want to go to that thing, like, but also it's, it's going to be ready for that kind of deal. Like, he's going to be, I think the limit that they're putting him on right now, it's 80 pitch, six inning. But if they feel that he's laboring or if they're worried, it could be more like, 
you know, as few as 60 pitches in four innings. Um, that's what it's looking like Tuesday. Like they're still sort of in a state of like building him back up and getting him ready uh, to pitch a seven inning game. Uh, I, re- I honestly, though, as far as like what to expect from him, uh, I'm expecting really fast pitches, uh, a lot of strikeouts. Um, it's it's going to be like, it's going to be a huge relief to see him again. And even though I hate the trade deadline narrative, like you're not going to be like, because I guess you're not getting Juan Soto, right? And you're probably not getting Shohei Otani because the Angels aren't really serious about getting rid of him. Like, you know, this is the best kind of player that you could just add to your roster, um, probably better than anyone you could trade for. And that's not to say that they should do less, but like it really is in some ways better than a trade deadline acquisition getting him back. And just on an emotional level, it's a huge deal because, you know, some basically the best player on this team, like through their really dark days after 2016 is like he's coming back and um i'm really excited to see what what that brings i am too i think the smartest thing to do as a fan with degrom right now is just take it a start at a time yeah just go watch him tuesday enjoy him if he's at his best i think we need to treat this like a guy who's been made of glass for the last year. Like he has always had injury problems for much of his career, pre-dominance and post-dominance, not even post-dominance. You know, he was still pretty dominant when he was healthy the last two years, but it's, it's so unfortunate this, that he just hasn't been able to stay healthy. He hasn't made a big league start in what will be 391 days on Tuesday. That's a long time. That's over a calendar year since Jacob DeGrom has last pitched in a major league game. And I really, I want him to be healthy through the remainder of the season. I want him to pitch well enough to go and get his big money in the off season, you know, big money for what's going to be a probably like, what about a 35 year old pitcher? Um, he's, I thought he was only like 32 or 33. I think he's, not 32. It's it's like he'll be 34 next year, I think. I think that's the age. But it's it's fairly old. He's going to get the money, though. Like, Joe Musgrove took the extension. He's the best pitcher on the market now. He probably. turned 34 in June, so okay. he'll be 35. He'll get Scherzer's contract. Yeah, probably. You would imagine. Something along those lines, maybe a year or two tacked on so that the AAV is a little bit less, but he's probably going to get that same money. Yeah. Um, and either a four year deal or a five year deal or four plus an option, what have you. But yeah, I just I don't want to get my hopes up is the problem. I don't want to go out there and expect him to be Cy Young Jake and then be like a little bit worse than Scherzer, which is incredible that like a guy like who would be the ace in any rotation if we're if he's like the number two in our rotation because he's a little bit worse than like Max Scherzer that we would be disappointed. That's incredible. Like if he pitches to like a mid to like upper twos ERA and we're like, man, he's really just not Jacob DeGrom anymore. That's incredible to itself. So again, we'll see what's cool is that we get Scherzer and DeGrom back to back days. Yeah. And that they've lined it up so that it's going to be Scherzer and DeGrom back to back days. So long as these two stay in the same line, um, start to start. That'll be DeGrom Tuesday, 
after Scherzer goes Monday and then Bassett Wednesday. And then this weekend you get Scherzer Saturday and DeGrom Sunday in the last two games of that, that big series against the Braves. So I, you know, Jack, you and I have been talking about the fact that the Mets are facing their big division rivals immediately after the all-star break, after they see the nationals, say seeing the nationals right around the all-star break brings back fond memories anyways. But the fact that the Mets then go and face the team that's trailing them in division, yeah. um, presumably after they've gotten their trade deadline acquisitions over and done with, yeah, it brings up fond memories of the last time the Mets made a deep postseason run because in yeah. 2015, the trade deadline was a catalyst as we yeah. all know well and good for what happened the rest of the way down the line because they got Cespedes, they swept the Nationals around the trade deadline. It wrapped around the deadline, the 31st through the 2nd. Yeah. And they were off and running uh, with the Nationals, the team trailing them. They really didn't have a chance after the Mets got the – that sweep there got the division t- uh, tied up, I believe. Yeah, it tied them for first. Um it was, and then they went on to sweep the Marlins. I think. I mean, they really never looked back once they, uh, once they swept that home series. I have a lot of fond memories of that. I think. I mean, it's funny that we're talking about Wilmer Flores and trade deadline stuff too, right? Because like the fact, but just the narrative of him coming around this time, it would really, I think, repaint everything about 2015 in a really like humorous way. Um, oh yeah, the, time is a flat circle. Yeah, time is – and baseball is an extremely stupid sport. I mean, that's the other thing here. Time is stupid and baseball is stupid. Um, I think it will be a little bit different in the sense that, like, I think in 2015 – and this isn't to write off what they accomplished after the deadline because what they did to get that team better than the Nationals was real. Um, I think there's going to be, like, a lot more of a roster overhaul – that we're not even fully prepared for between now and when they play the Braves on Thursday. Um, Like we're looking at potentially six or seven, just new roster spots built because you're going to have DeGrom back. You're going to have May back. You'll probably have McCann back and then trading for two to three other guys. So it's like five or six. It's, it's going to be a very different look by the time, we're playing the Braves in that for the marble series. Cause it's a five game series. It's going to be a huge deal. Um, but I also think that like the idea of Cespit is showing up when he did in 2015 and that being like their prize for all of their troubles throughout the deadline, starting with Gomez, you know, the, the second act being Flores is staying and the third act being Cespit is arriving. Like the third act here is Jacob deGrom is going to show up. Um, I think that there's a very similar, I think there's a really strong parallel between those two sort of historical points, um, or at least there's the potential for it to be like that. I think when we talked about like the West Coast series, and this was a while ago, but I mentioned that I wasn't totally, I think we talked about how it would parallel 2015. Uh, I think you had mentioned that this team kind of like how the 2015 Mets in May and June weren't really the 2015 Mets that we know because they didn't have Cespedes. Like the May, June, July, 2022 Mets aren't the team that we are totally familiar with or will be familiar with because they don't have Scherzer and DeGrom going back to back. And we're finally going to be getting that as well. Um, I think there's a lot that can be said about 
just where things could stand and things could go wrong because the Braves are 20 games over 500 right now. Like they're probably in all likelihood, a very, very good team. Uh, they're they not have had a very easy schedule for the most sure. part. Like but... they just, they just saw the diamondbacks who are bad, yeah. but yeah. they're a good baseball team. They keep winning. Um, I think that at some point it, it no longer becomes a matter of like, oh, you're playing bad teams. Like if you're playing bad teams and you're only ever winning against them, like you're clearly a good team. Um, I think they'll probably make the playoffs. It's not going to be the same as the Nationals were because that Nationals team in 2015, even to the point where they were in first and holding it over the Mets, they were very vastly like underperforming. Um, they were all sort of watching Bryce Harper put on an MVP year. Um I think the Braves are probably more complete. I think there's just a lot more at stake this time around. And it's less so like a fun, well, let's see what happens because we traded for Cespedes and maybe we'll catch up in the division. Like this is like, I think there's a little bit more on the line. Um, But if we get something, if we get a five game series, like the three game series against the nationals where they sweep and they send city field into hysterics, like that would be awesome. Um, I think a lot about not only the Wilmer Flores game, but I think about like the Sunday night baseball game they had. Um, do you remember this when like they homered like three times in an inning? Oh yeah. Of, like, oh, it's a great game. That's, that, that was, that's an all time. It's like a Mets classic from that year. Yeah. Absolutely. That was such a great game. That was, that was, that was shoved. Yeah. Cindergaard yeah. Went out, but yeah, Syndergaard shoved. Yeah. It was outstanding. Syndergaard was great. I mean, but that was also like, but that wasn't a game though that was like particularly close or anything. Like the Mets sort of broke it open in like the third or fourth inning and they just owned it the rest of the way through. Um, but I like those kinds of games too. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing in the rule book that says that you can't just win your games that way. Um, I think it also in a funny way is going to parallel the five game series that we had after the, or during the trade deadline last year with the Braves, where they kind of just let Jared Eikhoff pitch and like, we all had to suffer for it. Um, I mean, maybe they get to turn the tide on that. Maybe they get to really change the narrative and take ownership of the division by those means this time around, just having DeGrom there, having Scherzer, you know, back to back and hopefully at that point having a hit or two, um, I think that'd be really interesting. There are a couple of weak spots on this roster right now that like will probably need to be smoothed over in time. But I think that it's they'll, they'll probably do that. Um, yeah, I don't think they'll make the same mistake last year when they only traded for a bat and didn't get a single reliever. Like they got Trevor Williams, but ah, uh, they they didn't trade for. I wasn't no. Like they didn't trade for a reliever. You know, like they were they didn't talking trade for a starter either, which they really needed. Yeah, they were talking about like a bunch of different relievers and just they made no trades for just for an arm, you know, like reliever or starter. There was a bunch of chips on the table. I remember like early in deadline day last year, the the twins had made Byron Buxton briefly available and everyone yeah. at Twitter was like, oh my God, what if we get Buxton? Uh, that didn't happen, obviously. And then Buxton signed an extension with the twins. So, you know, that's, you know, whatever. But that was a crazy day. That was like my first deadline where I actually had sourced people that I was like talking to regularly and being given little tit- tidbits of information. It was overwhelming. And I had like three people I was talking to. Yeah. Imagine like being Jeff Passon on trade deadline day and having everyone telling you everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably, probably a lot. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, 
I think that this obviously the weekend series is massive and we'll see where it shakes out when we wake up on Monday morning, but the Mets have a chance this week to put the division away to go to town against the team with the worst winning percentage in baseball, the nationals. Um, they're playing their best baseball right then, right now, the Mets, they just swept the Marlins. They've won six in a row and they get to see the nationals with DeGrom and Scherzer and Bassett, your three probables in this series, a nationals team that come the middle game of the series might not have Juan Soto anymore. Um, in fact, come the opening game of the series, who knows? They might not have Juan Soto anymore. Soto anymore and, and, and the chips may fall where they may for those Washington nationals. And then the Braves, if the Mets can take care of business against the Nats, at least win two or three, you never know. You walk into that series, maybe up four, maybe up five on those Braves. Um, and it's a lot easier if you can leave that Brave series with even just two wins out of the five that they're going to play. Yeah, you could put them to sleep, really. Um, I think five-game series, like, yeah, you've got to at least win four. Um, this is like, I'm pretty sure we said the same exact thing last year because it was a similar predicament the Mets were in where the Braves were like, you know, four behind them or three behind them or something. And like, they just got way too close for comfort. Um, be really, really good if the offense continued hitting through that because I'm, I'm not really worried about the pitching anymore. Like the starting pitching is generally to this point been solid. We talked about deadline stuff. It's actually like, it's, surprisingly good fortune that the Mets don't need starting pitching help this year because the Castillo trade has just set the market like to a ridiculous price point that for starting pitchers, at least like I'm very happy the Mets aren't simultaneously trying to shell out arms and legs for like Carlos Rodon. Um, you know, the fact that they don't have to do that is going to be huge. The fact that they're actually just getting to Grom at the same time though. I mean, that's going to be great. Uh, I mean, huge series though, really huge series against the Braves, uh, coming up. I think it is funny that the Mets haven't lost a game since Austin Riley had that sound bite where he was like, we're coming for you because he has been great. Like Riley had like maybe the best week in all of baseball, um, maybe had the best month in all of baseball. Like he was sneaky good. Um, he's silently like one of the better hitters in the national league right now, um, but like, are you coming for us yet? Really? Like, I don't, I don't know. They've won six in a row. We haven't, you haven't made up any ground yet. So like, we'll see. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. Starley Marte would like a word with your position that Riley's had a great July. I don't know. I'm big. big I, looked on... at, look, I, when I, I know I, you I looked at the stats. I'm big on the Marte trade right now. Yes, I'm big on it too. I literally, the only way I even know how good Riley's been is because I was checking Marte. I was like, wow, he's been really good. Oh, wow. Austin Riley's at the top of like everything. But um, yeah, Marte has been great. Did we get those stats up for people? Did we tell him what he's been doing? He has like a 1019 OPS. This He had a 1019 OPS in July, which was 10th in Major League Baseball. Um, Eighth in yeah. Woba, seventh in WRC Plus. He hit 377. In the month of July, uh, got on base at a 422 clip, slugged nearly 600, 597. He had the walk-off hit in that Yankees game. He had a yeah. great week. He had a couple of homers. He didn't take his shirt off, though. Yeah, cowards. 
That was ridiculous. I mean, they all, I know why they didn't do that. Cause as soon as you take off Marte's shirt, he's the hottest one there. Like, and you can't. Oh God, he's hot. No, he's hot. Yeah. Right. <laughs> really though. Like you can't, you can't up one up that anymore. I think that was a, I don't know. I think they were kind of being petty on that. Uh, but he's I think been, they were being greedy on that. Yeah. Also to think that like at the beginning of the year, like we were talking about how good Eduardo Escobar had been and like how we were still waiting for Starling Marte to hit. I feel like amongst the three signings through the first month of the year, like Canna had a very high average and Escobar had a very high on base and neither of those were particularly like sustainable, but Marte was like at the bottom of Statcast on most of these metrics, and to look at it all now and see how much of like a mountain he's climbed to just get back into the middle, like he's been probably, I would even, I would really like, has he been their best non-Alonzo hitter this year? He Is may that, be. Like, Lindor, Lindor has you know had his his moments. Okay, you remember you remember going back to when the All Star announced and Marte was announced as an all-star. Yeah. I was like, huh. I mean, I know he's been like good for like the better part of two months now, but is he really having an all-star season? Is he better he's... than Nimmo? We asked that too. We were like, is he better than Nimmo? The answer is yes. He's yeah. been that good over the past yeah. three weeks that he's just there now. Like he is just there now. He is one of the best players offensively in the national league period based on the season he's having he's been that good for the month of july and he's he'd been solid for you know for a couple of months prior to that i think it's time that we remember some guys i think it's i think that's a good time to remember some guys yeah um you want to go first i i think i let off last time sure i'm gonna go a little bit out of the box here can i just remember the entire Washington Nationals bullpen from July 31st to August 2nd. And then also the series in September. Yeah. 2015. I mean, you gotta, you gotta name the guys. You gotta give them to us. Okay. Drew Soren. Okay. Big one. Matt Thornton. Yep. He gave up a big double to Lucas Duda in that series. Yeah. Duda had like an insane game in the middle of that series where yeah. he, hit, he hit two homers off Joe Ross and then hit the go ahead double lefty on lefty against Matt Thornton. I no, was Marte, Marte is just the Lucas Duda of this story, I think. Interesting but take. In in many ways, not fair to Marte because Duda was inconsistent, but like the hot streak colliding with a good team coming into town. Oh, that's that's very that's, that's vaguely thinking. fair. Yeah. That's, that's it's only in the context of weekend series against good team not talking in a vacuum and then the other big one in that bullpen was papelbon yeah well he's on twitter now dude and that's actually his twitter i yeah i know when he tweeted that Juan soda wants to be a met i was like all right jonathan papelbon what can you do to make this happen Yeah, and he's also that dude hates the nationals Oh, well, yeah. I mean, he's the Nationals hated him after what he did to Bryce Harper. Like, you can't do that. He, he kind of he didn't get a job in baseball after he was a national like that was just the end of his career. They kind of killed him. I mean, they killed him for good reason, but they killed him. Um, yeah, I uh, I'm having trouble remembering any other names in that. I'm just trying to remember the guys who blew it 
in the seven to one game, and Drew Storen was the big one. I think Blake Trinan was a rookie. Oh, yes, Trinan just couldn't throw a strike. Yeah, Trinan also couldn't throw strikes, which was funny. Um, I forgot that Trinan, like Sean pre- Kelly, was Sean Kelly on was that? Sean team? was Sean Kelly on that Nats team? He was he he was on a couple years worth of Nats teams, but was he on the 2015? He might have been like a. Well, I know he was on the I know he was on the 2018 Nats team because 20 it's like the four yeah. year it's like the four year anniversary of the 25 to one game, right? Yeah, you know it is, and that was that was that game where he gave up the home run and threw his glove. Yeah, Austin Jackson broke him, and then the Nats released him after that. They're like, you're either. Uh, you're either in or you're in the way. And Sean was being in the way. I think that's the quote they used. Yeah, Rizzo. Yeah, Mike Rizzo. Uh, he was not in that bullpen. He joined the Nats in 2016 and 2017. And he- I've got their I got their B ref up right now. And the names are the names we haven't even touched yet, man. Um give me some. Casey Jansen. Casey Jansen? Yeah, not Kenley Jansen. Casey Jansen, the former Blue Jays closer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I remember reading about like him hating that clubhouse with the Nats, like hate, like yeah, just a middle reliever like going to the press, being like, I don't like this. This is a bad vibe. Was something. I also, mean that- Felipe Vasquez was on the Nationals that year. He gave up Homer to Wilmer. Yeah. Oh yeah, Felipe yeah. Vasquez was – back then he was Felipe Rivero. Um, oh, that – Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we don't like to talk about him much. Yeah, we don't want to talk about him. But that's a good group of guys. That was basically everyone. We got Trinan. We got Storin, Thornton, Papelbon. Um, Casey Jansen. Yeah, that was – those were the big guys. I mean, thank you to all of them for their contributions. Yeah, uh, going back to what you said about Jansen hating that. Yeah. That was – it didn't seem like a very good clubhouse. No, it, I mean they were probably very pissed because they were supposed to like win the pennant that year because they had just gotten Scherzer, who had a great year, um, and they had a good rotation because they had not only Scherzer and Strasburg but they had Gio Gonzalez and Jordan, and Jordan Zimmerman. Zimmerman, yeah, and jo- and Doug Fister and um, uh, Joe Ross and Joe Ross, who's still in the organization, um, yeah. which is interesting. That's a good group. I'm going to remember Mike Nickius. Yes. Uh, oh, I saw this. We didn't even talk about yeah, this. We didn't. So the Mets signed their draft picks, uh, almost all of them. I think Brandon Sprout slipped through the cracks. I think they dropped the ball on that. The team's good. Whatever. It's not like last year. It will not be like last year, I say, as I shrink into a corn cob. No. Um, they signed Kevin Parada, and his agent was there to help him sign. His agent who works for CAA, which is like a fun little knit, you know, notch in the lore there, but he works for CAA and his agent is none other than former Met catcher, Mike Nickius. Yeah. Um, Mike Nickius is, he's a, what's the word that they use to describe his advisor? I don't know. What are we, I mean, he caught, I just remember he was like one of the designated catchers for for R.A. Dickey. Like, oh, I meant I meant like for Parada. Oh, advisor. Yeah, I think he was his advisor, something like that. Yes, but um, he. Uh, yeah, I mean, non-elite prospect. He look. He still looks good though, Mike Nickius. He was always a very handsome Met. 
I felt. Uh, sure. That's yeah. A, that's yeah. You see it? I, I don't know. He's a he's a guy. Yeah, I just you know I don't have a whole lot of like Mike Nickius memories because those Met teams that he played for were like garbage, and he didn't, like you said was like a non elite catching prospect. Didn't he? Um, uh, did did he not hit a grand slam off like Dale Thayer? Yeah, I think that's right. He did have like one homer as a Met, and it was a grand slam. Um, but yeah, that that was I guess that was cool. I think um, it, I believe it was off also Met legend Dale Thayer. It might have been. I don't have the game log open. Let me see if I can do this though. We don't have a whole lot of time, but I'm gonna look just for funsies because yeah, he. I mean, it's one home run. You can just kind of find it in the list. Um, I think it's here. So it was a nine nothing win against the Padres in 2012. Johan Santana threw a complete game shutout. And mind you, this was like right before his no hitter. So this is his last start before the no hitter. He threw a complete <laughs> game and they made him pitch 134 pitches the next game. Um, yeah, it was off Dale Thayer. Let's go. My Never. recall on random crap like that is unparalleled. That's, that's, that's solid to even know that Dale Thayer was in that. Like I forget that all the time. I just have all this stuff up in my head and I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. This is why we have the podcast. It's an outlet. It is. We do just kind of throw the, throw it on the board and see if it works. We speak a similar language. You know, I say, you say Mike Nickius. I say Drenani Valdespin, you know, wait a second. He was not even a, like, the Mets didn't even develop Nickies. No, they got him in like a trade, I think. It yeah, was like they, Did you they got him for Victor Diaz? Yeah, it's the Mike Nickius like lineage is very deep. Like he was in the system for a while, but it, like when you're a catcher and he was a good defensive catcher, so like it made sense why they they held on to him. Um but yeah, he I guess that's and they traded him in the he he was they traded him for Noah Syndergaard. He was part of the Noah Syndergaard package. Yes. So, I mean, really, we're always indebted to him because the way. Blue Jays in that trade were like, "All right, we're taking Dickey. Do you have any catchers who know how to catch a knuckleball?" And yeah. the Mets were the Mets were like, "Yes, we have two of them." And the Blue Jays said, "Okay, yes, please, I'll take yeah. them." The Mets were like if we give these guys to you, we don't have any catchers. So you got to give us John Buck. And they're like, we'll give you John Buck. And they gave us John Buck and they gave us Travis Darnell, but John Buck was also a good find. Yeah. A, a trade that involved two future, also like two pitchers who each were all stars at one point in their career, Dickie, a Cy Young award winner. And then the other players involved in the deal were catchers with the exception of, uh, What's his name? Who never panned out? The other prospect, the Mets. Wilmer Becerra. Yes, Becerra. Yeah. But Dude, were... you realize that Syndergaard might get traded at the deadline to like a National League team. That could happen. Like the Angels will probably be more inclined to deal him than like Otani. But like the, the Phillies were looking at him. Dude, him and that Philly defense. Ugh. Oh my god. I I really hope for everyone's sake that, that doesn't happen. That would be bad for him. It would be bad for them. Do you think? Uh, do you think that he would ask the Phillies to maneuver his start so he never has to pitch against the Mets like he did when the Mets went out to Anaheim? That's a good question. I don't know. Do you think the Phillies have like only like raw meat and raw dairy in their clubhouse? Bone um, broth. 
yeah bone broth and like unpasteurized milk yeah marrow marrow uh uh marrow soup or something i don't know what he eats but it's jordan like, peterson books it's the jordan peterson diet it is it is literally like it's worse than the degrom diet i will go on record and say it's absolutely worse than drinking mountain dews and eating taco bell like it's different. It's, it's different. gotta be. It's gotta be worse for you than that. It's oh. gotta be better for you eating microplastics than, like, eating like raw egg eggs and like making a, a a little hash out of the eggshells or whatever he does with them. I don't know. You're the cook. What would you do with eggshells? Throw them away. Yeah. Well, he doesn't. So. Oh my God. All right. That's a good place to put a pin in this one episode. 90, I think, best to avoid going off on any tangents about Jordan Peterson's politics and philosophies. Uh, episode 90 in the books here on the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us and taking an hour out of your day to spend it with us and chat about the Mets. Mets have three in Washington, followed by five against the Atlanta Braves. And we will check in with you guys after a week's worth of baseball. Hopefully the Mets make a couple of fun trades this week that we like and can talk about positively. He's been Jack Hendon. I've been Sam Lebowitz and Mets fan. Have a pleasant good evening.